Welcome to the Documentary On Podcast Show. Here you can listen to audio from some of the best documentaries that are no longer found on television or places like Amazon, Netflix. This is exclusive. Stay tuned for more documentary. It's a wonderful world if you'll only take the time to go around it. Are you formally challenging me to undertake a journey around the world in 80 days? <laughs> this is absurd. <laughs> Jules Verne invented science fiction. He's the first author to go at it consistently, constantly, conscientiously. He was actually asking something to which we don't yet know the answer. Is science something that is leading us towards a better world, or is it something which is going to doom us? Jules Verne's lifetime spanned the 19th century a time when mankind was unfurling its sails, navigating through uncharted vast seas of new knowledge. Fascinated with geography, science, and mathematics, Verne was among the first to climb aboard, eager to chronicle the journey into the future. Across the world, men were opening up new territories. They were experimenting with engines, electricity, and propellers. Verne watched their progress, and simultaneously spurred them on. Their destinations lay in the outer reaches of Jules Verne's imagination. My task is to paint the whole Earth, the entire world, in novel form, by imagining adventures peculiar to each people. But the world is very big, and life very short. To leave behind a complete work, one should live a hundred years. From the beginning of his life, crucial forces and elements came together to form Jules Verne's sensibilities and passions. He was born February 8, 1828, in this modest home in Nantes, France, once a bustling seaport in the province of Brittany. Though the ships have since moved on, Nantes retains much of the same character today. But in Verne's time, it was a cosmopolitan city where trade brought goods and news from all over the world. It was a place where a young dreamer could hear sailors and explorers spinning tales of legends and adventures. Have I always had a taste for stories wherein the imagination gives itself free scope? Yes, doubtless. And my family have always held arts and letters in honor. Whence I conclude this inheritance accounts in a large measure for my instincts. Jules Verne's father was an interesting man. He was a provincial lawyer, a successful and respected provincial lawyer. But he clearly had a side of him which was strongly spiritual. He studied theology deeply. He believed in penitence and punishing the self for sins real or imagined. He was a serious man. Jules Verne really tried to incorporate both his parents into himself. His father was a, a, a very logical person. 
a man who knew the exact number of steps from his office to his house, a man who timed everything. He would uh, have a telescope trained on the nearest church tower, so he would always have the most accurate time. Jules Verne's mother, Sophie, came from a long line of sailors and ship owners. Her outlook was quite unlike that of her husband, Pierre. The mother was the exact opposite. She was imaginative. Uh, Verne said about his mother that her imagination was like a tornado compared to his own. And he really went back and forth between these two people uh, and finally settled on a good blend. Verne got on well with his sisters, but especially bonded with his younger brother, Paul. While both shared a love of ships and the sea, it was Paul who was to embark on a naval career. Jules, as the firstborn, was pressured to study law and eventually take over his father's legal practice. When he was young, he dreamed to be a hero, and he, his life uh, was not the life of a hero. All the books he wrote, it was the life he dreamed to have when he was a young boy. For many years, the Verne family told the story of how 11-year-old Jules shipped off as a cabin boy on an ocean-bound clipper, only to be overtaken by his father before the ship reached the high seas. Afterwards, young Verne promised he would travel only in his imagination. It's very difficult now to describe the Jules Verne's life without uh, talking about the legends. Uh, of course, he liked uh, the sea, he liked the boats, but I don't think we have to find special events to understand why he wrote his books. And yet, there is much about Verne's youth that fueled his imagination. When Pierre Verne's practice began to thrive, he bought a vacation home in the riverside town of Chantenay. The house that his father bought near the river, you could see over the houses behind his, the back of his garden, the masts of the tall sailing ships in the harbor. In school, young Verne was a modest achiever, though he was fond of mathematics and once won a prize in geography. Outside of class, the able-bodied and quick-witted boy was dubbed King of the Playground. But when he was alone, he spent hours reading books that would inspire him. Robinson Crusoe is one of the crucial texts for Jules Verne for two reasons. One is that it, it creates that atmosphere of the exotic, exciting world uh, into which you enter when you sail on the sea in ships. But two, in the fact that Robinson Crusoe used the materials that were about him to create a world in which he could function. That had quite a strong uh, influence on, on Jules Verne's fascination with how you could change the world, how you could make it a more comfortable place with the use of, of your own ingenuity. Indeed, many of Verne's stories would involve characters marooned on an island. Verne himself grew up on the Ile Fédo, a tiny island in the middle of the River Loire in Nantes. This becomes a basic image in Jules Verne's works. Many of his works involve floating cities, floating islands. And of course, the submarine in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is suspected for a long time of being some kind of floating island. He wrote a lot about 
island and all these things, because perhaps there is a sense of, of loneliness. As Verne came of age, he often felt personally like an island, as attempts at romance were unsuccessful. His first crush was on his cousin Caroline, who rejected him. Deeply hurt, Verne eventually bounced back, though he'd become somewhat sarcastic. This is the perfect moment to marry me off, dearest mother. I accordingly request that you start your campaign. Arm yourself with all it takes to serve me up as succulently conjugal. Piping hot and cooked to perfection. Put me in the hands of some nice young lady with plenty of money. But in the meantime, Verne had begun to write. Inspired by Nantes and the volumes he had gotten at the bookstore near the chateau, a castle from long ago, Verne was dreaming of a future as a playwright when his work might be acted out on the stage at the old theater. However, for Pierre Verne, his son's future would be in law school in Paris. But Paris would change Jules' life in a way that his father never imagined. Jules Verne in Paris is a classic story of a young man coming there from the provinces to do his studies as a lawyer, to take on his family duties and become what his father wanted him to become. And then looking around him and saying, wow, <laughs> there's more fun to life than this. It was Verne's mother, Sophie, who contacted relatives in Paris to introduce him to the artistic community. She alone understood his poet's heart. Not surprisingly, Verne was drawn to the arty atmosphere in the Latin Quarter, which today remains very much as it was then. He had a lot of little jobs like all the students and artists. He had a job in a theater, but he was very poor. He had one jacket, so it was not a very rich life. Nonetheless, it was enriching to Verne as he'd fallen into a setting that fueled his creativity. It was the happiest period of his life because he was living in an artist's world and it was a community. He was living with dreams and with um, optimism and all this. Verne had inherited from his mother a passion for music and at one time even dabbled in it. He wrote lyrics to some music by his friend Aristide Ignard, a successful writer of French musicals. He got to Paris uh, just when the revolution had occurred, the revolution of 1848. It was a very exciting time. Victor Hugo was alive, uh, and Alexandre Dumas was alive. Alexandre Dumas, the father, uh, took Jules Verne under his wing, he produced his very first play, Broken Straws, which ran for two weeks, which isn't bad for a first play. As Verne made other valuable friendships, he began to pick up important knowledge from noted scientists and mathematicians. But the bulk of his information came from exhaustive research, often at the National Library. This lifelong habit would serve him well. He read everything scientific journals, 
uh, reports of explorers, books on geography, browse through atlases, and he took notes the whole time. And very often, these notes themselves would generate the idea for a novel. In 1851, Musée des Familles, a popular magazine, published Verne's novella, The Mutineers. It featured many of his eventual trademarks. A voyage at sea, good versus evil, struggle with nature and technical details. He began writing in the middle of the last century. Science itself had become extraordinarily popular, so he was on that wave as well. He also was following the lead set by his own favorite writer, which was Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, back in the 1840s, invented the technique of scientific verisimilitude, which simply meant using real science in his stories to make the stories themselves more believable. One of Jules Verne's earliest essays in science fiction is interestingly more science fantasy, Master Zacharias, about someone who learns to control time, but who believes that his soul is tied up with the workings of clocks. And in that, Jules Verne was writing more like Poe. Years later, after Poe's death, Verne would eventually write a sequel to Poe's unfinished narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. But in 1856, as Verne was working out his writing technique, the plot of his own life changed dramatically. While attending a wedding in Amiens, Verne met the woman he was to marry, Honorine Morel. Well, Honorine was a society girl, a widow with two children, uh, absolutely the opposite of the Bohemian. So if uh, Jules Verne was going to marry Honorine, he had to have money. And he wrote to his father and asked for 50,000 francs to help him buy a seat on the stock exchange. And uh, that was a long, long detour for him. Verne was in his late 20s, and his father had given up hope of him ever becoming a lawyer. Pierre Verne had accepted his son's writing career. But now, as a would-be stockbroker, Jules had totally confused his father. The young man tried to explain. It is not a question of my giving up literature, for that remains my chosen career, but of pursuing a more lucrative profession at the same time. I want to create a presentable situation for myself. I've reached the age when one needs tender companionship. Vern and Honorine were married in 1857 at the Saint-Eugène Church in Paris and tried to settle into married life. Verne hated his job at the Bourse, appalled by the preoccupation with money. At home, he continued to write, something Honorine couldn't understand. Honorine was not at all interested in his work, could not discuss uh, his work with her. So that marriage went cold very, very quickly. And soon he was taking long trips with his male friends to Scandinavia, to Britain. Uh, and he actually came home too late for the birth of his son. For Verne, the birth of his son Michel in 1861 was not a blessing, but more of a nuisance. 
Jews were, didn't suffer him. For example, he said in his, in his letters, I can't write because of the noise, uh, the sun is crying. At age 34, success still eluded Verne. Though miserable at home and at his job, he still had the drive to complete his new book, The Balloon, which later became Five Weeks in a Balloon. After many rejections, Alexander Dumont found an intermediary to introduce Verne to one of the premier publishers in France, Jules Hetzel. He submitted Five Weeks in a Balloon to Hetzel, and Hetzel liked it, uh, foresaw the possibility of a long series of novels like this. But not without insisting on changes. Hetzel loved all the geographical facts about Africa and the scientific explanations about ballooning. What he didn't want was a book about adventure. He wanted one that was an adventure. Hetzel was very attracted by Five Weeks in a Balloon. He set out to sort of educate people. And he saw something in Verne's work and in the Five Weeks in a Balloon that would appeal to all ages and he encouraged him to work in that vein. As Verne's career was finally taking off, he quit his job at the Bourse. After 15 years of struggling as a writer, he was an overnight success. Jules Verne had a great piece of luck with Five Weeks in a Balloon in that it coincided with the decision by a famous Paris photographer called Neda to build a balloon of his own and to sail it as far as he could around the world. Nadar's balloon traveled only 20 miles, but the stunt generated huge publicity. People weren't sure, indeed, whether Jules Verne was writing about something that was actually happening. And because he was so full of believable facts in his description of the voyage of the balloon, it seemed real. With his first published novel, Verne was miles above his day-to-day -day problems. He was operating at full steam, dreaming up new ideas on how to take the world on his extraordinary voyages. Eighteen sixty-three was a turning point in Jules Verne's life. The success of Five Weeks in a Balloon laid the foundation for his collaboration and friendship with his editor and publisher. Jules Hetzel. Over the next four decades, Verne would create 66 novels and become known throughout the world. His novels were translated into as many as 140 languages. There's no question that Hetzel's uh, insight into what Jules Verne could become was a major element in his success. Uh, not only the fact that he was prepared to publish him in the first place, but the way that he wanted to publish him, heavily illustrated books which people could immediately relate to and understand the kind of technologies Jules Verne was talking about. However, in a blunt letter, Hetzel rejected Verne's second book of 1863. Paris in the 20th century was Verne's first stab at prophecy. Hetzel said Verne's dark vision of the future was improbable and too depressing. The story of the book is a young poet who lives in, the, in a society that's been totally taken over by money and technology, and therefore he feels very out of place. 
There's a certain amount of autobiographical material in this novel. Verne himself had been working on the stock market, where the book is set. Paris is very much the way it is now. It has overground railways, terrible traffic, lots of cars. Verne accurately described a city where cars would pollute the air and skyscrapers would block the sun. He wrote about a tall steel structure that could have foretold the Eiffel Tower, which was built 26 years later. The pace of life in Verne's futuristic Paris is hectic, as crowds of people flock to stores that stay open all night, and images are transmitted through faxes. Generally speaking, he, uh, his pessimism about the Industrial Revolution reaches its low point. Culture has declined. The poet goes into a bookstore and asks for the complete works of Victor Hugo. And the uh, man behind the counter says, what did he write? That's, uh, to Verne, that was the ultimate. Time would ultimately correct Hetzel's mistake and prove Verne correct. Over a century later, his great-grandson, Jean Verne, discovered the manuscript of Paris in the 20th century and got it successfully published, first in France, then in America. It was in a safe, a big safe, in my garage, so, and it was closed uh, since, uh, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years. And my father always says that uh, he was empty. But back in 1863, after Hetzel's rejection, Verne moved on to what would become his next success the following year. Journey to the center of the earth. As with much of Verne's work, there was a strong autobiographical element. You can see his relationship with Honorine in the boy's relationship with, the, with Groiben, the girlfriend who sends him off. His girlfriend has urged him to go on this trip so that he can come back a man. Byrne could wish that Honorine encouraged him in his work as he tries to become something that he isn't yet. But also, in order to uh, deserve Honorine, he had to become something he had not been a businessman. So it was a complicated psychological relationship for him. The success of Journey to the Center of the Earth put Verne back in Hetzel's good graces, and the two men were off and running. In 1865, Verne took his readers on another voyage, not only through space, but into the future. Though no one knew at the time, many predictions in From the Earth to the Moon would prove correct. The best summary that we can have of how From the Earth to the Moon is so prophetic uh, is a letter that uh, Colonel Frank Borman wrote to Jules Verne's grandson. He said, it can't be a coincidence. Uh, our space capsule was 20,000 pounds, made of aluminum. It was 12 feet high. We took off from Florida, just 100 miles from the place where Verne's characters took off. We splashed down in the Pacific, just two and a half miles from the place where Verne's characters splashed down. He chose Florida for exactly the same reason that NASA did. It's the only place in the United States that's uh, close to the equator, which is important for space launches. 1865 was not only significant for the publication of From the Earth to the Moon, 
It was also the year Verne moved his family to L'Equitoy. By then, the Vernes had been married for seven years, and Honorine's opinion of Jules as a writer had changed dramatically. She was very proud of the fact he was a writer, a successful writer. She supported him in setting up a life where he could write. So she had to conform her life to, to make sure that he was a success. As for Jules, two desires came to a head. He wanted little to do with his family, and he needed some real-life adventure. His solution was to buy a boat. Ironically, he named it the Saint-Michel, after the sun he found too difficult to tolerate. Going on a boat and getting out to sea was an escape for him, and it meant freedom away from this very rigorous schedule of writing he had. And um, it made him feel young again. In 1867, Vern and his brother Paul traveled together on a vacation to New York State. They sailed aboard the Great Eastern, the ship Cyrus Field used when he supervised the laying of the Atlantic Cable. Verne kept a journal which would ultimately yield the book A Floating City. After the trip, Verne wrote an article for a U.S. newspaper. I'm ashamed to admit that I spent only one week in your country. I love America, and every Frenchman can love her as a sister of France. I think what he liked best was the, the energy, the go-getiveness, the fact that uh, everything was sort of being done in the world, the great inventions, the great engineers, the great projects, were all American. In 1800, American steamboat inventor Robert Fulton had invented the Nautilus, a submarine prototype. Seventy years later, Verne paid tribute to American ingenuity by borrowing the name for his vessel in 20,000 leagues under the sea. The book was full of accurate predictions of undersea farming, harnessing the ocean to create electricity, and the danger of killing off whole species such as the whales. According to legend, Verne wrote some or all of the novel aboard the Saint-Michel. Whether it is so or not, the book is undeniably filled with a true picture of life at sea. People today who work in submarines say that he has the the feeling of what it's like to be there, it's so accurate. As with prior Verne works, there were distinct autobiographical elements. One illustration portrayed the character of Professor Aranax as a dead-on likeness of the author. But it was Captain Nemo who spoke for Verne. The sea is all. Its breath is pure and healthy the vehicle of a supernatural and prodigious existence. It is pure movement and love. The sea is beyond the pale of despots. On its surface, they can yet exercise their iniquitous rights, fight there, destroy there, import there all the horrors of life on land. But 30 feet down, they have no sway. Beneath the sea, that's the only place for independence. There I acknowledge no master. There I am free. Clearly that ingredient of taking on the world was something that appealed to him and he needed to express in Nemo. He originally envisaged Captain Nemo as a Polish nobleman whose family had been killed by the Russians and who was seeking revenge. 
But Hetzel was determined to curb Verne's political views as expressed in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Hetzel felt they were too close to reality. Russia had crushed Poland in a way that shocked all the world. However, while the novel was in progress, France signed a treaty with Russia. France, being afraid of being attacked by Germany, needed an ally. The obvious ally was Russia. And uh, Hetzel knew that if he published a book which appeared to make Russia the villain, it would be banned. Frustrated by Hetzel, Verne fired off an angry letter. Though Verne ultimately sidestepped the issue, this was a far cry from the meek writer who had allowed his publisher to squash an entire novel a few years back. If I can't explain his hatred, I won't. I'll say nothing about the reasons for his hatred, about his former life, his nationality, and so on. And if necessary, I'll change the ending. But interestingly, it's that that gives Nemo his power because he expresses anger at the state of the world that so many people feel. Not a specific cause. We don't know exactly what it is, and so we can identify it with it. The book was so successful, Verne brought Nemo back in a sequel called The Mysterious Island. But all of this was little consolation to Honorine. Fed up with the emotional and often physical distance from Verne, she longed for family and friends back in her hometown of Amiens and Verne gave in to her. In 1871, they moved to the provincial city where they'd remain for the rest of their lives. By 1871, Jules Verne and his editor and publisher Jules Hetzel had been working together quite successfully for nine years. When Verne's father Pierre died that year, Hetzel stepped into his shoes as advisor and friend. Hetzel uh, was born in 1814, so he was 14 years older than Jules Verne. We have a sort of relationship, father-son, between them. Hetzel uh, not only published books, but also corrected the books. Hetzel was successful from publishing popular authors like Victor Hugo, George Sand, and of course, Verne. Hetzel had a tremendous influence on Verne and really did tell him what he thought could go in and what the public would accept because he wanted Verne to be a commercial success. But when Hetzel asked Verne to include matters of the heart, Verne said the subject was disconcerting to him and unnecessary. Love is an all-absorbing passion and leaves room for little else in the human breast. My heroes need all their wits about them, and the presence of a charming young lady might, sadly, interfere with what they have to do. Obsessed with his work as he was, Verne himself might not have wanted the distraction of love. Nonetheless, in his 1873 release, Around the World in 80 Days, his hero Phileas Fogg found love during his travels, and Verne and Hetzel found success as global as the story he wrote. When he wrote Around the World in 80 Days, uh, 
Byrne really hit the jackpot. He was already making a good living, but now he became wealthy. Around the World in 80 Days appeared in installments in uh, one of Hetzel's magazines, and that meant that newspaper correspondents could cable summaries all over the world. So in America, for example, people were reading summaries chapter by chapter of this novel. The beauty of Around the World in 80 Days was because it actually took means of transport that were available at that time and showed what you could do with them if you pushed them to the limit. So in reading Verne, people's eyes were opened to the way that the world had changed and the way they could be part of that. While American journalist Nellie Bly was inspired to literally duplicate Phileas Fogg's journey, Verne's fans did the same with the Around the World in 80 Days board games. The book's popularity spread into other areas as an early example of entertainment merchandising. It also became a play. It becomes one of the greatest plays of all time. Of course, they brought elephants and cobras and everything else on the stage. That play opened up so many people's imaginations. The whole world was set on fire thinking about what the rest of the world was like. The play ran for 50 years after Jules Verne's death. There were other plays. Verne's 1876 novel, Michael Strogoff, a political adventure about Tsarist Russia, also became popular in the theater. As did the children of Captain Grant. But as successful and popular as Jules Verne was, his family life was a sad affair. His son Michel was growing more difficult, destined to become a juvenile delinquent, and then an adult without direction. He didn't understand his son, and he didn't want to understand his son. He was an artist, and he was living for his writing, for his heart, for his imagination. Occasionally, Verne found time to spend with the boy. It was on the Saint-Michel III, a 92-foot steam-powered yacht. The journeys failed to straighten out Michel, but insofar as Verne's career was concerned, they were a success. As he drew inspiration from virtually everything, the notes he took later became the novel Dick Sands, The Boy Captain. One bit of inspiration got Verne into trouble. His novel For the Flag featured an immoral scientist whose inventions caused mass destruction. Inventor Eugene Turpin believed that the character was based on him and sued for libel. Turpin lost, but he might have won had he known about this letter. Verne had written his brother Paul when he began the book with specific mention that the idea was inspired by none other than Turpin. But this lawsuit was just the beginning of the sad final chapter of Verne's life. As Jules Verne grew older, his output of books remained high, but he had fewer successes. He spent most of his time in Amiens with his wife, Honorine. In 1886, two unrelated events tore another hole in his life. As he walked home from the library one evening, 
He was shot in the leg by his nephew who had gone mad. A week later, his publisher, Jules Hetzel, died. He changed completely. During the last years, he was certainly a boring poor person. He didn't suffer anything. It was impossible to live with him. After Hetzel died, his work got very gloomy and had to do, obviously, with these sadnesses in his life, but also something that he was allowed to express for the first time that he'd probably felt all of his life. We can see a good summary of Verne's changing attitudes toward technology and science by looking at Clipper of the Clouds and then the sequel to that called Master of the World. In the first novel, Robur is a hero. In the second novel, Robur is a tyrant, a subjugator a conqueror. He is using science for evil purposes. Is science something that is leading us towards a better world, or is it something which is going to doom us? Who is actually asking something to which we don't yet know the answer? It's a good question. Despite Verne's intellectual pursuits and personal tragedies, he became involved in Amiens civic affairs. Elected four times to the town council, he spearheaded the building of a permanent circus and was prominent in local theater activity. It's quite admirable that someone who had grand visions as to how the world would change and could change also got involved at the grassroots level in making it happen. He didn't just live in the world of the imagination and speculation. He also no longer lived in a world of personal adventure. As a result of his gunshot wound, he developed a limp and could no longer keep his balance on his cherished boat. The official reason given at the time for Jules Verne's giving up his Saint Michel III was the injury in the foot, the wound in the foot. But we've learned since that there were other reasons. Uh, Saint Michel was expensive, but so was Michel, the son. Though money had never before been a problem, in one year alone, Verne paid 200,000 francs to pay off Michel's debts. Happily for father and son, there was an eventual reconciliation. Michel displayed a genuine talent for writing and began to help his father with his work as Verne's health declined. However, even Michel's youthful approach couldn't bring back the magic. Science fact had caught up with science fiction and in some ways surpassed it. So the world which once was an exciting place created by Jules Verne was now an exciting place where these events were happening. And he was understandably not quite as ahead of the curve as he had been. Nonetheless, because of the body of work he created, Jules Verne's place in literature was guaranteed. Jules Verne invented science fiction. He's the first author to go at it consistently, constantly, conscientiously. Verne not only spawned a whole new literary style, but films as well. Beginning with Georges Méliès' Trip to the Moon in 1902, there were nearly 100 other film adaptations, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and Around the World in 80 Days. He opened our eyes to the romance of science 
and they've remained open ever since and that has encouraged us to push forward the boundaries of what we can do and to change the world that he helped to create. Igor Sikorsky was excited as a boy when he read Clipper of the Clouds and grew up to invent the first practical helicopter. Similarly, Simon Lake, who grew up on 20,000 leagues under the sea, developed an advanced submarine. And Commander Richard Byrd, who was inspired to journey to the North and South Poles, also owed a debt to Verne. In 1900, Verne suffered from diabetes, cataracts, and a disabled foot. So he and Honorine moved from the rambling house on Rue Charles de Bois to a smaller, more manageable home just a block away. There, he would continue to work right up until his death. I think that he died knowing that he had finished his work. This was very important for him. Byrne died March 24, 1905. He was 77. Although never a practicing Catholic, he accepted last rites, and funeral services were held in a church. He was buried in a local cemetery where Michel later erected a statue of Verne, bursting out toward immortality. I have sometimes heard the reproach that my books excite young boys to leave their homes for adventurous travel. This, I am sure, has never been the case. But if boys should be brought to launch out on some enterprises, let them take example from the heroes of my extraordinary voyages. Okay. 